Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. The state of the global climate in 2023 is stark and clear. Things are moving so fast that the full months before the end of the year, we can already declare that 2023 is the hottest year recorded in human history. That is Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, with a grim message as people are gathered in Dubai to talk about climate. Yes, and these results are based on the preliminary findings from the World Meteorological Organization. It's been such a warm year so far that even if December is cooler, it still won't make up for it, they say. Producer Molly Siegel is with me here in the studio, and I'm Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And Laura, I do promise we will talk about solutions and not just the bad news. I'm really hoping so because this is tough stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's really tough stuff. And that is not lost on climate experts that this message they are sending sounds so familiar. We sound like a broken record. We keep repeating the same thing every year and say that, you know, these data show that we are not ambitious enough and that we need to do more. This is Roberta Boscolo. She works with the World Meteorological Organization, or WMO for short, as a scientific officer. And I reached her in Dubai. And this idea of a broken record, here she's actually playing a bit off of a new report from the United Nations titled Broken Record. Temperatures hit new highs, yet world fails to cut emissions again. Yeah, that that's kind of an inside joke, but it just reveals how frustrating it must be for people um, saying again that things are warmer than ever. And it's not surprising that this year is on track to be the hottest. The temperature topped 52 degrees in Xinjiang province over the weekend, the highest ever recorded in China. Japan, too, is suffering. The heat wave across much of the northern hemisphere isn't sparing the world. Here in B.C., we're bracing for a heat wave. Heat warning issued for Ottawa, feeling closer to 37 with the humidity. So global temperature is not the only record that is set to be broken by the end of 2023. The WMO says we've seen record ocean temperatures from April to September. The amount of carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide in the atmosphere keeps increasing, not decreasing. Of course, this has had ripple effects on the frozen parts of the planet as well. For example, the WMO says we've seen glaciers melting in Europe and Western North America at an extreme rate. Arctic sea ice has also been very low this year. February, in particular, was the worst month for sea ice observed in nearly 45 years of satellite data that's been documenting this. And of course, it's not just snow, ice, and oceans that are feeling all of this. No, of course not. It's us. It's humans. 
people have died from wildfires, flooding, and extreme heat in 2023, all worsened by the effects of human-caused climate change. Here's Antonio Guterres again. We are living through climate collapse in real time, and the impact is devastating. This year has seen communities around the world pounded by fires, floods, and searing temperatures. Record global heating should send shivers down the spines of world leaders, and it should trigger them to act. Guterres is always hammering at home. I, I bet, though, it's really hard to keep that message sounding new, even if it is admittedly more urgent than ever before. Yeah. But, you know, this is exactly why the WMO shares its preliminary data at the climate talks each year. It's for that reason they want to galvanize leaders to take action now. And while the realities of climate change are getting quite tangibly worse before our eyes, Roberta Boscolo says there are actually signs of positive change. It is maybe frustrating that we keep saying the same message but we also see that something is, is moving. There is some kind of hope. We have uh, solutions that can be deployed. She did give me a few examples. Europe has made a lot of progress on electrification, resulting in emissions reductions. Then there's the United States, where you'll recall President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act back in August 2022. It's a climate law which included hundreds of billions of dollars towards kickstarting a green economy. And then... China is, uh, has been moving very fast with the deploying of renewable energy and uh, has been uh, also championing uh, wind and solar and a uh, great expansion also for electrification. I always find it so interesting when we talk about China and climate because it's almost like it has two faces. There is that face where they're really working on things like electrification, alternative energies, all that kind of thing. But China's coal-fired power generation hit an all-time high in 2022, according to the International Energy Agency. Yeah, I mean, that that's true, Laura. But I, I think Roberta Boscolo's point is that the world needs to build out these climate solutions like renewable energy and electrification, while at the same time also phasing out fossil fuels. So it's all part of the picture in trying to stay within the Paris Agreement targets of 1.5 degrees of warming. The window to achieve that is getting smaller and smaller but Roberta Boscolo and Antonio Guterres and many others are keeping that message alive this year. I think what is at stake is really that the windows to limit our increase of temperature to 1.5 is really fading away. But I think we should do our best to keep it, to have it like the North Star for uh, guiding the countries. We have the roadmap to limit the rise in global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius and avoid the worst of climate chaos. But we need leaders to fire the starting gun at COP28 on a race to keep the 1.5 degree limit alive. And Guterres is also clear it's not just about emissions at the talks. He says it's also important that wealthier, historically heavy-emitting countries provide money for more vulnerable countries that haven't contributed the same level of carbon emissions. Yeah, that loss and damage fund, which on day one countries reached an agreement on, we're going to hear a little more about that later. 
And we will be watching all of this closely. But thank you so much, Molly. Thanks, Laura. Our next guest is also at the UN Talks to speak about ripple effects of climate change in her own country. The damage, devastation and deaths caused by catastrophic monsoon flooding have overwhelmed Pakistan. Millions are homeless and there is now a surge in disease and malnutrition. Much of Sindh province remains underwater and millions of people in distress. Men living on a rooftop call out asking for clean drinking water. And young men can be seen swimming in waters well over their heads. Everything is destroyed. How are you getting by? Uh, we have migrated. Uh, so we've taken our children, parents and families. We need uh, help of international community and the people to help us out. This is the biggest disaster Pakistan has ever faced. Well, it's been over a year now, and Pakistan still hasn't fully recovered from historic flooding that wiped out homes and farmland, displaced millions of people, and submerged a third of the country at one point. Amira Adil, what has the recovery looked like? So recovery is super slow, and in some cases it's not even possible. A lot of people have had to start anew. Like that person who said um, that they had to migrate, that's the story of a lot of Pakistanis over here. So over 33 million people were affected. And as a country, we are undergoing a socioeconomic crisis, which has been um, you know, extended for the longest time. So people are just being pushed lower and lower below the poverty line. Um, and it's just devastating for a very large segment of society. But does that make you angry? Oh, well, I don't think that I can afford emotions. <laughs> As being part of the development sector, we really have to do all we can to support the bottom uh, tier of society. My name is Amira Adil. I'm 26 years old. I am the um, head of sustainability at the National University of Sciences and Technology, which is one of Pakistan's largest universities. Um, I also have my own organization called climb-8.org, uh, which is basically for climate literacy in Pakistan. Amira is speaking at a COP28 event about women and conflicts caused by climate change because for the first time ever at the UN Climate Talks, there's a day dedicated to peace. When you have something like a flood happen, um, especially in an area where there's already um, a lack of resources per se. So climate change just sort of exacerbates that situation, right? So those lack of resources or unequal distribution of resources, of say land, water, food, basic healthcare, when these basic uh, amenities aren't being provided to people, there are a lot of negative sentiments arise uh, within the population towards authority, towards maybe the government. Um, there is a lot of rising poverty levels, which may lead to increased crime rates. Um, and then that can also lead to conflict, including political conflict. And when tensions rise in communities that have been hit by extreme weather events, Amira says it's often women who are most affected. So I'm doing this research project, which just ended with UN Women. 
And in that research project, we were required to visit Sindh Tatta and uh, also Gilead Baltistan and sort of talk to the women over there and um, get their stories and their take on how they dealt with the floods. And their stories are absolutely devastating. So they've lost everything. Um, it's, it's something that I can't even imagine. Can you tell me some of those stories? From Sindh, um, we talked to this older woman who was talking about another woman who was pregnant at the time the flood hit. And so she was in the process of giving birth when uh, when the water was at its highest. Her in-laws so then took the newly born baby and they ran away with uh, their their other kids. Her husband stayed with her as long as he could, but in her state after she had just given birth, uh, and, and with the sanitary situation there, she couldn't survive. And so now her four kids live with her in-laws and they're being taken care of by family. But she lost her life over there um, because that village that she was from, nobody could take them to safety on time. There was no support. Uh, nobody came to save them. Nobody came to warn them. So they could not um, save her life. There was another story from Gilgit Baltistan. Um, this was about a community that lives near a small river and there's a giant walnut tree in the middle of that river so whenever there's a heavy inflow through rains or such um the walnut tree sort of directs the water towards the community so a few men from the community um, decided to tackle this issue because they heard that there was a flood coming so they um, went into the river to cut down the walnut tree to direct the water away from the community and one of them lost their lives uh, because the flood struck just as they were cutting the tree down. And he was buried under rubble. His body was retrieved after five months of being buried under there. So those are the sort of stories that we heard uh, while we were there. And these are just a few of the women and few of the people that experienced what happened last year in Pakistan. So to a lot of us, this reality, their reality is unimaginable. It's so much trauma, so much tragedy, so many painful stories that I'm sure that you've heard. What do the stories tell us about how women in particular experience climate disasters? I can talk about the women that I spoke to in Sindh and in Gilgit-Baltistan. And what we've seen, especially in Sindh, is that a lot of women lack the autonomy, uh, lack autonomy or lack access to opportunities. So in a lot of cultures, especially in Sindh, women aren't allowed to leave uh, the premises of their communities. So if there isn't a school or there isn't a skill development center or something like that within the community, it gets very hard for them to be educated in the first place. And then when there's a conflict, cultural barriers sort of exacerbate the vulnerabilities in climate crises as well as conflicts. Can you tell me what, how that plays out then when something like a flood hits? What, what happens? So when a flood hits, the women are completely dependent on the men to take care of them and sort of lead them to safety because a lot of these women have never been to, say, urban areas in the first place. They need their men to sort of rescue them. They can't really um, fend for themselves in situations like these. This isn't the case for all of them. This is just um, some some areas in Sindh that I spoke to uh, where their culture inhibits them from stepping outside of their communities. Right, because we should make clear that, that, that there are many, many Pakistani women who are educated, accomplished, um, and able to handle things on their own. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural diversity in Pakistan. The impacts of these climate crises are borne by the rural, uh, most um, impoverished section of society. As we know, the climate change does not affect everyone equally. And so that is why we talk about these women the most and they come up the most in conversation because the rest of us can afford to fend for ourselves and can afford to, you know, um, protect ourselves from these situations. Can, can, I want to try to get at... Um... We, you, you touched on this a bit, that people's sense of security when when these climate-related disasters happen. Um, how does that affect their relationships with each other? So they can be fighting about the most basic things, such as access to water. Who gets water? When there's a limited amount of water that can be used, some communities, uh, close-knit communities, might try to ration the water, but then there might not be enough for anyone to use. So it's really basic things like that, food and water, who gets how much and um, who's getting these resources. The larger the community, the larger this conflict may be. And have you seen that happen? I have not personally seen it, but um, the women that we spoke to, especially in Sindh, reported conflict, especially the uh, women living in urban areas, because they have larger communities, they reported uh, conflict within their homes and within their communities, within uh, their families as well. Within their homes? I mean, are you talking about violence against women in their homes? I'm talking about violence against women, yes. Okay, well, then what is needed to help those women who are facing those risks, including violence, um, and that is all made worse by climate change, as you've been saying? It's a very large question to tackle, but but if we're going to talk about women specifically, educating women um, and building their skills is very important in scenarios like these because that allows them to be able to fend for themselves and um, have a financial independence, per se. And even when we talk about... um, you know, how educating women affects climate change and the climate crises. It affects both mitigation and adaptation. Um, so with mitigation, we see that drawdown.org tells us that educated women are more likely to have fewer children and healthier children, and then um, as a result, have better coping abilities when it comes to climate crises. And for adaptation, we see that skill development within women can help them, you know, fend for themselves and build back their lives themselves instead of relying on the men around them. So what kind of education are you talking about specifically? I mean, general primary, secondary education, or as you just said, skills training? It really depends on the culture. I mean, doesn't it? Um, So if a woman is residing in a rural rural area, it it really depends on what sort of education is going to help her find better work opportunities. So for urban areas that would require sort of primary, secondary, high school, the traditional education that we're used to. But for a lot of areas in Pakistan, especially in rural areas, that translates into skill development. Okay. What difference do you think this one day dedicated to talking about peace and climate change will make at the UN Climate Talks this year? I think it's an absolutely important acknowledgement to how climate change disrupts peace within and between communities. I mean, climate change is pushing Pakistan further into socioeconomic crises, uh, which and which may be a key driver for conflict in a lot of communities if it isn't already. So having this acknowledgement about the connection between climate change and peace is, I think, extremely important. Amira Adil, thank you. I hope we can speak again. Oh, yeah, inshallah. Thanks so much for having me. 
Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So recently we heard a documentary from the CBC's Caroline Hillier on green burials, climate-friendly methods to bury loved ones. And Caroline is here with your responses. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Laura. I just want to tell you, I thought it was a beautiful piece of work. It surprised me in so many ways, and uh, it opened my eyes to different responses to death and burial, and I really appreciate you doing it. I know I'm not the only one who had such a reaction to it. What have our listeners been saying? Yeah, uh, we've been getting a lot of reaction. I have been too from like friends and family. Um, And many people have written, you know, about their desires for their own funerals, um, telling us what they did for their loved ones, and um, also what their communities have been doing for years. Right. That's really interesting, too, because we're we're portraying this as something that's something new or relatively new um, in the world of trying to be green. And for some, that's just not true. So let's hear some of that. Yeah, so first, uh, a note from Zulfikar Ahmed with a reminder that green burials are traditional in a lot of cultures and religions, or a lot of parts of the green burial process um, is. So he writes, this really is not a new way of environmentally friendly burial. I would like to share that Muslims all around the world have been burying their dead six feet under without clothes and wrapped in two sheets for the past 1400 years. Right, and that is a a very good point um, because, for example, traditional Jewish burials are quite similar. So thank you, Zulfikar, for that email. What kinds of other things did listeners have to say? So I've got an email here from Maria Benham. She writes, uh, I like the idea of natural burial a lot. I've never liked the caskets, cement, etc. I have considered cremation, but I like this better. On the farm where I grew up, we faced life and death on a regular basis with the animals and grew to view it as a natural process. So this corresponds with that experience. Did you hear any stories from listeners about what green burials for family members have meant to them? Yeah, so we have this email here that came in from Dave Weeb in Regina. He writes, My brother Bernie died in September of this year after an illness, and he was a strong proponent of green burial. He learned about a nearby family-run facility that provides an option for green burial. It is a beautiful forested area with winding walking trails, and he and his wife chose a spot among the hickories where they would be buried. When some of us visited in summer, we went to this spot, and he noted that the lower growth consisted partially of wild gooseberries. And he made the comment, I will feed the gooseberries. 
He really loved this spot. And Laura, Dave goes on to write about what happened after Bernie died. He describes a beautiful fall day in mid-September as the group, uh, the family and friends, uh, took turns carrying him up a gently sloped path to the spot among the hickories where a shallow grave had been dug by hand. He had chosen a plain, unfinished pine box. He thought better to avoid traumatizing his young grandchildren if he was just wrapped in a shroud. And it was lowered with ropes. We all shared the task of burying him, including the four grandchildren, all under 10 years of age. We stopped for a moment and just stood in silence, taking in the forest around us, the rustle of the light breeze and the leaves, the variety of birds and other creatures that made their home there, and the musty aroma of autumn decay. I have to be honest with you, listening to you reading that just gives me chills. That that idea of everything being so peaceful and at rest for someone's burial, it just it goes to show that this obviously means a lot to people. Are there, yeah. any, are there any more stories like that? Yeah, we have uh, we have a couple more. I'll read this one. But um, it is, it's really interesting. You know, death is something that's a bit taboo. Not everyone feels comfortable talking about it. So I'm so glad that we got these emails that we can share. Um, like this one from Kate Madigan in BC. She says, I live on Cortez Island where there is a new green burial site this year. My mother passed away suddenly this spring and the burial instructions were the only part of her will that was not complete. Green burial does seem to fill in a gap that the usual burial options create and present a good alternative for those of us who care about doing things that align better with nature. So that is the burial option we went with for my mother. Many of my family are fairly conservative, and I knew they had some hesitations about this. But after the burial was complete, members of my family later thought the whole experience of this alternative burial was very positive. Wow, so many thoughtful responses. And I'm not surprised, Caroline, because that dog just just evokes so much for people. And I will tell listeners that if you haven't heard it yet, please go and listen. It's really worth it. Um, You just head to What on Earth on your favorite podcast app. And uh, the title is kind of hard to miss. It's called Bury Me Naked, (laughs) (laughs) which is the essence of it. Right, Caroline? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. You can always write to us about anything you hear on the show, earth at cbc.ca. And we've got some time now for some climate stories in the news this week. As you heard us mention earlier, the COP28 meetings in Dubai kicked off with news of a landmark deal. The agreement on loss and damage will help poorer nations that are vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And the pot of money created by wealthier nations is now around $580 million. It will be used to deal with the implications of extreme weather, rising sea levels, ocean acidification, and melting glaciers. And speaking of glaciers, there's a new study out in the journal Science outlining new challenges and opportunities precisely because of the melt. The peer-reviewed paper says new land and rivers are being revealed as the glaciers retreat in northern BC, Yukon and Alaska. The new rivers could be good news for salmon as they suffer habitat loss elsewhere. The rivers could provide new routes for spawning. But there's another side to this. Mining companies are staking claims in the previously ice-covered landscape. And the proximity to future salmon could become a problem. That's why Tara Marsden, who is the Sustainability Director for the Gitanyahu Hereditary Chiefs, 
wants any development done in partnership with First Nations. And Marsden herself is a co-author of the study. Our example is this nexus of climate, Indigenous rights, um, you know, mining in- interests, plus, you know, the, the potential climate solutions in mining, right? Like, it, it is just this huge nexus of that. And um, it's, if we can share our story, uh, and if we can connect it to data and connect it to solutions, then that for me is very uplifting. It keeps me going. Portugal is solidifying its status as a leader in Europe when it comes to cutting emissions. According to Euronews, the country just set a record, running on renewable energy for more than six days. Between October 31st and November the 6th, the nation's electric system ran on solar, wind and hydropower. In fact, it was even able to export some electricity to Spain. Usually about 60% of Portugal's energy comes from renewables. But the country is planning to shut down natural gas by 2040 and run solely on renewables by 2045. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. That's all for now. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Vivian Luck, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wilson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.